Welcome to Reverb, everybody. Today we are extremely excited to be joined by Dr. Karma R. Chavez, an associate professor and department chair in the Department of Mexican American and Latino Studies at UT Austin. Dr. Chavez, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Us too. Yeah, so Karma, we wanted to start off just by asking you to give us a kind of broad trajectory of your research. What kinds of topics and concepts have you been most interested in over the course of your career and and where has that brought you to today? Sure. I think I started out interested in questions related to uh, power and oppression, and I think I still am thinking about those questions. Although increasingly over the years, I've really come to be interested in questions related to belonging, uh, related to citizenship, uh, nation building and race, questions like that, uh, as well as how gender and sexual identity inform all of those formations. And so I, I guess uh, thinking broadly about ideas related to intersectionality is probably one way to, to put my trajectory. Yeah. So I think I think one of the sites where that's where your account of intersectionality comes forth really provocatively and in ways that uh, that 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 I think a lot of us find really uh, uh, useful and fantastic is your uh, is your book Queer Migration Politics. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what the what was the argument of that book and what were you hoping to accomplish with uh, with your uh, with the publication of that work? You know, it's interesting how books come to be. And so uh, my first job out of grad school was not in a rhetoric program. It was in intercultural communication. And that was at the University of New Mexico. And that was an article department. And so I actually wasn't really intending to write a book right off the bat. And then I saw this job at the University of Wisconsin in rhetoric. And that was you know, kind of where I had saw myself maybe more than intercultural. And so then I get the job at Wisconsin and all of a sudden now I have to manufacture a book. And the dissertation wasn't really book ready, if you will. <laughs> and so I uh, was like, okay, well, what am I going to do? And so I knew I wanted to do something related to the dissertation. And so I really started to think about what was this intersection that I was seeing all over about immigration politics being informed by queer politics. So I, I decided to see if there were more sites of investigation related to that and how that rhetorically was happening. How were people building those connections? And at the same time, I was also really interested in this move in queer theory that was all about future and all about utopia. And it just kind of pissed me off. I just kind of thought it was crap. Um, and not all of it, that's like a big generalization, but it really irritated me. And so I was trying to, one, document this thing that was happening about queer and immigration politics that I thought was rhetorically very fascinating. And then two, really trying to intervene in this uh, utopic discourse within queer theory. Yeah, that's great. I, we, I think, wanted to ask specifically about that that kind of they say I say move that you make in in queer migration politics, kind of distinguishing your your approach from a utopian approach. You talk about coalitional moments as an alternative to that. So what is what does that concept of coalitional moments mean in this work, and and why do you see it as maybe more generative or or even just more appropriate to the rhetorical texts you were looking at? 
So one of the reasons that the utopian turn was happening within queer theory at the time was because people were really frustrated in queer theory with the kind of presentist politics of what they saw as the mainstream lesbian and gay rights movement. And what that means was really trying to get kind of immediate gains related to marriage, related to military, related to hate crime legislation that seemed good in the immediate and maybe were for a very limited number of LGBT folks, but actually had really negative implications more broadly. And so that was where that turn kind of came from in part, and it also came from challenging the kind of no future thesis of Lee Edelman and some of these queer theorists who were like, you know, queers should just be anti-future. Uh, so it's kind of this two-part thing. Um, and I'm not interested in the Edelman no future, like that's fine if white gay boys want to do that, good for them. Um, but I, I was, especially Jose Munoz, you know, compelled by what he's doing, but also felt like it was, uh, a little bit unfair. And um, part of that is that to turn the present over to just the mainstream folks uh, seemed problematic. And the second part of that was the mainstream is not all problematic, right? There's important stuff there too. So the idea of the coalitional moment is to try to find a way not to rectify those two positions, but to note the ways when those kind of utopic longings and maybe those very pragmatic longings uh, come together um, or could come together as well as other kinds of comings together that aren't necessarily like a long-term coalition or a long-term alliance, but a moment that's ripe with possibility. And that could be a brief moment or it, it could be longer. And so I was trying to, to theorize those, uh, those possibilities of those coming together, if that makes sense. Absolutely. The way that you have kind of synthesized the uh, you know, taking taking kind of the best, it seems, from, you know, a future looking uh, uh, vision of what coalitional politics can be while also residing kind of in the present as well. Uh, so you you write, if I may quote from the book here really quickly, because I think it's a useful one. When political uh, coalitional moments, you write, happen when, uh, quote, political issues coincide or merge in the public sphere in ways that create space to re-envision and potentially reconstruct rhetorical imaginaries. Uh, so I was wondering if you could, like, as a way into some examples of these coalitional moments that you write about in queer migration politics, in what ways do these examples of these coalitional moments reconstruct a rhetorical imaginary? And what exactly does that mean? So I think, you know, especially in the 90s, but well into the 2000s, people really were theorizing a concept of the imaginary. And, and part of that, of course, was extending from psychoanalytic theory. But part of it really was separate from that, thinking about Benedict Anderson's imagined communities. And so when people were thinking about those, those concepts and the different forms that they manifested, um, it always seemed to me really striking that people weren't thinking about this as a rhetorical construct. And if we think about imaginaries as rhetorical constructs, for me, then all of a sudden, I think it opens up space to think about refiguring those. And so um, I was trying to intentionally bring those two things, rhetoric and imaginary together, and then um, relatedly to show specific moments where I thought people were coming together in interesting ways, imagining differently, uh, recognizing what materially was there, but also sort of pushing in different directions. And, and they weren't doing it in a kind of utopian way. They were like actually doing it, right? 
they were engaged in practices that were meaningful and material um, that were pushing in these very um, kind of radical ways, I guess. And so, um, and, and, that, and those were rhetorical processes. So that's kind of what I was trying to do with that. Well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the move towards rhetorical imaginaries, or, or at least um, navigating both the present and the future, you talk about in queer migration politics, is uh, relates to the concept of citizenship. And I think this is a really important point to emphasize for our listeners that, that that's been like a really important concept throughout your work, citizenship and and both how that like the idea of citizenship can limit um, existing social movements, but also how sometimes ideas surrounding citizenship are drawn upon in like short term political situations, like to advance, you know, specific material gains. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk to us about citizenship as a double discourse, uh, which is something that you mentioned in queer migration politics, and also uh, like how, as you discuss the U.S.-Mexico borderland, specifically queers normative conceptions of citizenship. Yeah, I mean, so I think what is interesting about citizenship in our field is that in my reading of our history, it really is such a taken for granted concept. Everyone, what we're trying to do in the classroom is make good citizens. If you look at departmental mission statements and, you know, kind of the introductory classes, it's all about making good citizens. Education um, for citizenship and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I do think, you know, so much of our, our privileging of like public sphere theory and all of these other theories really are, 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 are oriented in this direction. And on the one hand, of course, that's a really positive thing in the sense that the values that we imagine being connected with citizenship, um, whether that's, you know, being community minded, uh, you know, civic participation, some of these questions, uh, they're absolutely important. On the other hand, uh, who has access to participate uh, as citizen? And that's not just from the standpoint, right, of someone who studies immigration, but anyone who studies racialization in the United States or gender in the United States or, or, or sexuality in the United States sees, of course, too, that um, citizenship is not fully accessible. And so one of the challenges is when people who don't have full access try to argue in the name of the citizen as if they do or they're striving for it, uh, there's always someone left behind because it's premise, citizenship is premised on exclusion. And so I'm always trying to think about other ways that we can imagine belonging that don't require us to use the language of the nation state in that way, um, or at least in its contemporary configuration. Obviously citizenship as a concept has attached to various formations over the years, but in this historical moment, um, I think places like the U.S.-Mexico border or any borderlands uh, challenge these notions. For one, in the borderlands, you really, I mean, they are queer spaces in the sense that you really see uh, that nations are blurry. Um, if you're in a place like Nogales in Arizona or on the other side in Sonora, you're there and people used to just walk across that border and people's families have literally been divided by the border. Um, indigenous nations have literally been divided and they look the same on either side, right? 
uh, and they used to be just one unified place, but they're not now. And so borderland spaces, literally the geographic spaces, uh, help us, I think, to see the kind of fiction of the nation state and its borders. And so I think that's part what makes them productive uh, for our thinking about what do we mean when we say citizenship um, and what's its connection to the nation state. Absolutely. And I mean, I think what's what's so critical about bringing an intersectional perspective uh, to a place like the U.S.-Mexico borderland, uh, I mean, this is something that, that I think a lot of people were probably surprised about, like, especially people from my generation, like, born in 1991. Uh, the very first sentence of your introduction was so unbelievably provocative, where you write, you know, prior to 1990, gays and lesbians were legally excluded from migrating to the United States. I was, like, appalled to, <laughs> to hear that. And so, and so I was kind of, I was kind of curious if you could talk more about, about why that specific coalition, you know, between, uh, of, like, queer politics and immigration politics kind of coalesced. Uh, what kinds of actions and strategies were used uh, to advocate for, uh, for uh, sort of broadening that sense of citizenship and belonging at that borderland. So that's one of the things that's that's interesting about putting queer politics and migration politics into conversation, right? So there's always been a connection there. If we're persuaded by the scholar Ethne Louvade, uh, who says that gender and sexuality have always structured every aspect of the immigrant and immigration experience, uh, then, and we start to think about that seriously, we can see there's always been uh, a natural way to be thinking about immigration as a matter of gender and sexuality, whether that's through various, you know, Chinese exclusion, right? Largely was about fears about reproduction, about Chinese women, Asian women more broadly, um, as uh, prostitutes and 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 men as, uh, you know, problematic in any number of ways, whether they were too feminine uh, for working at laundries or uh, whether they were going to go after white women. Um, and you can think, I mean, we could go on and on about the, these ways. We could also talk about how um, the connection between homosexuality and subversion, um, whether that be anarchism or communism throughout the early to mid 20th century, there was, they, they were always connected and they were always also imagined to be foreign, right? Both homosexuality and, you know, subversion wrapped up, you know, into this, uh, this queer immigrant body. So there's always been these connections. What you started to see happen, uh, really, you started to see it in the 1970s, but in the 80s into the 90s, uh, and Barney Frank actually has a lot to do with this, right? The, the representative from Massachusetts, first out gay uh, congressional representative, um, I believe first, maybe second, but very, you know, one of the first two. And um, there started to be this strategy about uh, what if we could make the immigration issue for LGBT people really about good citizenship? And so you get uh, the, the sort of underground passage of the uh, right for LGBT or LG people to migrate in 1990. And it pretty much goes uncommented upon in many ways. But it catalyzes a number of organizations who then take this up as this issue uh, to not only make it legal for LGBT folks to migrate, but to create um, a, an asylum grounds for LGBT identity uh, and to uh, give same-sex partners the migration benefit. 
very narrow. I mean, HIV positive migration was in this too, which is kind of in some ways a separate thing and what my next book is in part about. Um, but it was absolutely, we're, our, our families are just as good as yours on the one hand, or we just want to have the freedom of America on the other for asylum seekers. And, and that was what the organizing was. And so what my book tries to document is alternative ways to put these issues in conversation. Um, and hopefully, hopefully it does that, but it doesn't also discount um, that those are important. They're just not all that's there, right? Yeah, so I, I think we, we did want to pick up on the thread about your case study of HIV AIDS. You talk in Queer Migration Politics as well about how anxieties over pandemics and epidemics have played a role in shaping the politics of citizenship and migration, right? And so, you know, obviously we're talking right now in the context of a still raging pandemic. Um, so I, I think we wanted to just put a very presentist question to you of like, in what, in what ways might we draw lessons from the scholarship you've done on how pandemics and epidemics shape the politics of citizenship and migration um, to, to better understand what's going on right now? And specifically, how do you think this current pandemic maybe transforming uh, some of those notions like in pre contemporary politics. Well, you're not the only ones who, who want those connections made because uh, <laughs> as I was finishing my book, uh, well, so I, I actually sent uh, the full manuscript to the publisher for peer review in January, just before the uh, pandemic. And then I got reviews back in uh, late May. And the whole next book is about AIDS and citizenship, basically, and immigration. And so uh, one reviewer in particular was basically like, I think you need to write, rewrite this whole thing. And it just really needs to be about, you know, COVID and less. And I was like, I told my editor, I was like, there is no flipping way that I'm doing that. And she was like, no, I don't think you need to do it either. But I think you need to add a, a prologue and an epilogue and, and, you know, kind of take that the presentist moment then and I was like okay I, I can I can do that and so I did do that um, and <laughs> that's such a funny accident of timing like <laughs> yeah it really is. And, and of course they also made me rush to get it done because they want this you know book that's about disease but um, you know one of the things I think that uh, that AIDS teaches us generally and teaches us you know about uh, this moment in, in disease probably generally, but I think there are a, a number of similarities, uh, is that the, the disease becomes an opportunity for the nation to do what the nation does best, which is to, I, as I put in my book, to, to alienize. Um, in other words, to create aliens out of as many people as possible in order to really shore up the proper citizenry, the healthy national body. Um, and in the same way that disease becomes an opportunity for the nation to do that, um, it also becomes an opportunity for a very interesting coalition building. And so, or, or relationality you can think of through a coalitional lens. And so one of the things I talk about in uh, my book is about how uh, AIDS activist media, queer media, um, in the 80s and in the 90s 
was providing some of the most interesting and nuanced and complex depictions of Haitians uh, during the different points of the AIDS pandemic, because of course Haitians were on the original 4-H list as one of the high-risk groups, and it led to so many problems for Haitians in the U.S. and in Haiti. And you had like the New York native, for example, or um, Diva TV later on as an arm of ACT UP, taking Haitian issues seriously, knowing that Haitians maybe didn't want to work with queers, but still really trying to um, complicate how everybody else was thinking about Haitians. So, you know, disease becomes that kind of opportunity too. And I think one analogy there is too, is you see, um, I think COVID has a lot to do with the uh, rebellion moment that we saw in the aftermath of George Floyd. There's something about what disease does to community, what it brings to the surface, that it enables these other political possibilities, or at least that's my hope. I might be totally like, you know, the utopian idiots I critique. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think you're alone in, in, in having that kind of hope that, that there is, that we are in a generative moment right now where there are some possibilities for, I mean, I think COVID, COVID kind of represented this kind of rupture point for a lot of different things. I think it at once enabled, as I, I think uh, you, you put it perfectly, of, you know, nations doing what nations are going to do, like they're just running their source code more more quickly now because, you know, they, are, they, they have the ability to, uh, you know, exercise othering and alienizing practices that were already taking place. Um, it's all the more easier to do now. Um, and I think that it's really important to kind of underscore the role that that othering and alienizing, uh, basically drawing sharp distinctions between the normative and the non-normative plays in in a lot of the work uh, that you do and in our kind of thinking about intersectional politics more generally. Um, and to that end, uh, we, we also wanted to ask a little bit about uh, the role of the body in some of your scholarship as well. Uh, so you published an article in, I believe it was uh, 2015, on uh, the body, an abstract and actual rhetorical concept. Um, so, uh, so I was wondering if you could talk with us a little bit about why the concept of embodiment is so critical in the work that you're doing and the topics that you study, uh, and how it draws our attention to the rhetoricity of bodies in ways that, uh, uh, and what are the ways that that needs to be taken up in broader scholarship? Yeah, I mean, the, the truth of that article, so is, you know, RSQ was doing uh, these keywords essays, and they were uh, both in, invited and peer reviewed. And so uh, kind of a, a unique opportunity, because um, often invited stuff isn't fully peer reviewed, right? But the, this was peer reviewed, which was good. And um, I think the kind of work I do is still not uh, mainstream enough to find a regular home in RSQ or QJS. Um, and so I was happy to uh, take the opportunity to, to try my hand at writing something when Michelle Bailiff asked if I would. Um, and it was really a pain in the ass because, um, you know, I, I'm thinking about bodies and embodiment constantly, but I hadn't thought a lot about how the field had theorized it. And so it actually required me to have to read all this stuff from scratch that I kind of taken for granted outside of the feminist and queer scholarship. So what I, what I really began to realize though, was that part of the intervention that feminist, queer, disability, 
uh, critical race kinds of scholarship we're, we're making, but without kind of saying it directly, uh, had to do with the way that the field had just assumed a kind of abstract body. The body was kind of taken for granted. Uh, even in some really great scholarship, the body had kind of been taken for granted. And so, you know, it's a pithy little piece, but what I, I try to do, and I felt kind of bad because I had to take uh, my friend Megan Parker Brooks, uh, her book as an example to illustrate what happens when the bodies we're talking about are not the abstract body, but when they all of a sudden become particular. Um, and there were these ways that uh, Brooks was talking about Fannie Lou Hamer, who's this, uh, you know, um, sharecropper uh, activist, uh, civil rights activist from the 1950s, 1960s, who has a fascinating story. And you should read Megan's uh, book on Fannie Lou, Lou Hamer and also uh, her collection of uh, Hamer's writings. Um, because she's so important rhetorically and historically. Um, but Brooks in this sort of one section or a couple sections just really focuses on her kind of like sweaty, fat, dark black body. And I was like, we would never do that to a white man. Um, or if that was, it would be for a very particular reason. It wouldn't just be that we had to describe um, the body because it was unusual because all of a sudden it was particular and so I, I just use this kind of very pithy quip to try to turn what I call it you know a textual stare as opposed to a textual wink uh, drawn on Chuck Morris uh, at the field like what are we doing when it comes to bodies what are we doing um, and I still have that question and I don't always know what I'm doing either so it's not like I'm standing on high um, but it, it was it was an educational experience for me. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, we had a lot of generative thoughts, like from that question, like the, this this idea of um, directing a textual stare at the field, which I think is necessary for all kinds of reasons. Um, but specifically in terms of embodiment, um, like, I guess, have, have you, I mean, and, and this is like, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but like, have you thought about studies that that might come out of this textual stare because i'm really fascinated by that like would you know for instance like imagine if we um like studied the embodiment of very powerful white men more like it seems like embodiment seems to always be directed at non-normative bodies right yeah uh, or often i don't want to say always would would that kind of more comparative or more nuanced uh critique of embodiment be a, a fruitful direction do you think I mean, I think it could be, right? It's, if you think about, uh, you know, Donald Trump has had a lot to say about his own body as of late. Uh, I guess he's a perfect specimen uh, <laughs> health. Um, and yeah. uh, he's, he's a young, vibrant man. The, the, young, yes. vi the youngest, vibrant, most vibrant president. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, he, he certainly is. Um, <laughs> he, so he, you know, he's constantly commenting on his body in part because everybody else is commenting on his body. And so is this an exception to what I was talking about? Well, of course not, because as much as he's the sort of representative of a certain kind of white male power, um, he's also severely overweight. He's also an overweight as I just used an ableist term, right? So he's, he's a fat person, right? He uh, has the hair issue that people comment upon. Why? Because that's not the typical hair. It's not Joe Biden hair. It's not George W. Bush hair. 
Um, they comment on his, you know, the little white circles on his eyes and the orange tan. Why? Because that's also a feminized thing. Um, so what, and then there's the age piece of it, right? So again, kind of go through the, the different intersections there. So you do see it in some of these cases like Trump, but because of his distance actually from an idealized masculinity, what would it look like for us? What would be the generative benefit um, to take a, a, a look at bodies um, in a more, those who would kind of fit these norms in a better way. I mean, it would be interesting to see, and maybe it would be actually stupid, right? Maybe it'd be like, well, there's nothing more generative about that than actually what we've been doing to these non-normative bodies all along. So maybe actually, um, you know, unless the body is specifically being put forth argumentatively, it's not worth looking at. I, I mean, I don't know, but I, I am interested to, well, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about that too. Well, I think, I think what it's, it's so interesting that, that you brought that example up because literally uh, right before this conversation, this is, this was the example that, uh, that Calvin and I were tossing around as a potential, like, what if, what if we were to study the embodied, uh, the embodiment of Donald Trump? Um, and one of the things that, uh, that I think we discussed was if nothing else, it gives us a comparative lens with which to view the ways that power can uh, sort of insulate somebody from the minoritizing effects of, you know, certain non-normative body features, right? Because like, despite the, despite the fact that if you look on Twitter or elsewhere, even in the media, like Donald Trump is ruthlessly critiqued for his bodily presentation, uh, but... It, but what real material effect does that have on Donald Trump? Probably, I mean, unless he's reading it and getting his feelings hurt, like, I mean, pro not that much. Like, it's not doing anything to disempower him in any sort of structural way. Um, so if nothing else, I think it at least, to me anyway, points out the kind of lines of structure uh, that that allow for certain types of uh, people to to exhibit you know to have to to exist in a non-normative body and not have that affect them seemingly in in any real sort of material way yeah i love that now that's actually that's a paper worth writing because i think you're right i think it illustrates exactly what you just showed and you could uh, you could kind of map back and forth to other examples. You could talk about Michelle Obama's arms. Um, you know, you could talk about um, the, the ways that Kamala Harris is um, put into her body in ways that she doesn't want to be, or even Hillary Clinton. I mean, probably, um, you know, it'd be interesting to think about like someone like Pete Buttigieg or something too, right? So only one step away because of sexuality, but does that, you know, kind of really digging into what, the different embodiments mean. So I love that. You should run with that. <laughs> I think about um, Iris Marion Young's work on uh, deliberation and the other, where she talks about, and I always teach that uh, text in my first year writing class. And this year I actually got a really provocative critique of it from a freshman student who said, uh, so, so just to like give a brief overview Part of the argument in, in that piece from Iris Marion Young is that uh, we need to expand like the, the realm of acceptable approaches to argument in the public sphere um, to encompass more of the ways that more kinds of people tend to communicate. And uh, my student basically critiqued this, uh, arguing that this, this reinscribes the othering 
um, that, you know, that was foisted upon non-normative bodies um, prior to that intervention, that, that it assumes on the one hand that like non-normative identities uh, cannot effectively communicate in traditional genres or traditional forms. And it also assumes that there is no kind of affect or embodiment to the rhetoric and argument of the powerful, right? And so like just getting, like designing studies that could enable us to see like the very particular and arbitrary like uh, embodied comportment of the powerful and, uh, and, and that like so-called like rigid argumentation is like suffused with deep affect and embodiment, right? Like that's the kind of work that I think would be really interesting to see. Well, and I think your point about bringing uh, Iris Marion Young or someone who's so revered, right, when thinking about deliberative democracy uh, and using that as an opening uh, to engage some of these questions, right? So here's this very democratic move. Here's this, this really important inclusive gesture. But what does the gesture imply? Um, and, and I think that that kind of move is always important when we're thinking about the kind of meta work we want to do on the field is we have to take the material that um, is doing the best within the framework that exists and then not to tear it down but to show the assumptions it's making that actually reinforce the thing it assumes it's challenging right um, and I think that you know your student is uh, should probably uh, go get a PhD in rhetoric in a few years. Um, but that is, you know, that's, I think, exactly right on Young. She, it's a both and though. It's never a tear down for me. I think it's really important never to right. completely tear down. Um, Absolutely. Thanks for workshopping some, some work <laughs> that, that Alex and I want to do. That's, that's good. Um, that's good. Yeah, this is, <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Very, very helpful here. Um, so, uh, so I think uh, to use that, that point about deliberative democracy and, and about the role of maybe the broader role of scholarship in uh, the public sphere, I think that, uh, that we also wanted to talk to you about uh, another one of your, I think your, your, as of this recording, your most recent publication, uh, which is uh, Palestine on the Air, uh, which features uh, transcripts from 11 radio interviews that you conducted on the issue of Palestine and, uh, and uh, Israel conflicts, uh, which originally aired in, uh, on the Madison, Wisconsin community radio station, WORTFM. Uh, and I think that uh, we, both Calvin and I, read through the, uh, the mission statement that you offer in that introduction and found it really, really compelling. Compelling. Uh, I just want to quote from it in brief because I think it's important to 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 get this on the record in the kind of same way that you also you know put uh, put some put a lot of these interviews on the record. Uh, rhetoric scholars should not only analyze what others have said and written. We can, we can and must use our methodological training to produce incisive texts of our own outside of conventional scholarly publications. We have an active role in amplifying voices and airing different points of view. Beyond the methodological contribution of this text, my intervention also enacts a political commitment. The interviews in Palestine on the air are vital and timely due to the U.S. mainstream media's one-sided presentation of Palestine, Israel. Tacit and active support for Israel and its policies and routine silence on Israeli violence 
violence, occupation, and settlement. Diverse viewpoints should be heard because U.S. mainstream media often rely on pro-Zionist perspectives to frame Palestine-Israel, which limits and distorts the information available to the average person in the United States. This book resists such distortions and creates a dialogic archive. So I was wondering if, just kind of extrapolating off of that, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, about why this project was born, like kind of what, what gave rise to this, and why it's so important to you politically and intellectually, uh, how, it, how you see it contributing to your broader scholarly work? Yeah, I mean, it's totally different than a lot of the other stuff in some ways, right? Um, so when I was in Madison, I was lucky enough to have a, a Wednesday noon hour radio program on uh, community radio. And I had essentially complete freedom to interview. It was usually an interview you do or sometimes a round table, but I could interview whoever I wanted live on the radio for an hour a week. And uh, I will never have anything as wonderful and beautiful as that ever again. But I took it very seriously. And my, my whole point of the radio show was always to uh, bring voices that didn't get a lot of air otherwise. And so in um, 2013, or I guess, yeah, it was 2013, 2012, when the American Studies Association, which I'm a member of, was starting to consider whether they were going to endorse uh, boycott, divestment, sanctions. Um, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? The, they, they were trying to say whether to endorse the academic boycott that's part of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which was called for by Palestinian civil society in 2005 on the uh, end sort of the second intifada. And uh, I thought, well, I need to, I'm not really educated on this. I know a little bit about it. Uh, so I, that was, I had my radio show. So I started doing research on it. And then I started just doing some interviews with folks uh, who I thought were interesting, who would publish interesting books. And um, they were, you know, really informative interviews to me. And then as part of, I'm always like, I'm going to do a deep dive if I'm going to do anything. And so then I decided I should go to Palestine. And so uh, in 2015, I went with uh, the Palestinian American Research Center for a two-week trip to the West Bank. And, you know, it was a life-changing, life-changing uh, trip in so many ways. And I, I also uh, was in Israel proper for a few days with friends there. Uh, who who um, I adore and and you know who have uh, you know a complicated relationship with their own nation state and 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 the entire kind of political situation. So I became a bit galvanized, and while I was there, I felt really compelled to have to do something to give back to the folks who had shared their stories. And so I came back. I did a series of four or five more interviews. I think in total, I think there were 12 in total, but only 11 made it in the book. And then a friend of mine was like, you know, you should do something with these interviews. And uh, so I paid a grad student to transcribe them. It was a very complicated publication process, as anything is with Palestine. Um, I looked at some popular press presses and I, I couldn't get any bites. And then my editor at Illinois, uh, she was like, you know, I think we can make this work, but we're going to have to do it a little bit different than we would a normal book because it's the University of Illinois. And if we know the story of Stephen Salida from 2014, who was fired from the University of Illinois, part of that was because of so much Zionism on that campus, including folks who are on the University of Illinois press board. So uh, we had to go a different route. Um, which is always what you have to do. I, that, that story is quite boring, but it's always what you have to do when you uh, publish on Palestine. So I wanted to do something that 
um, would reach different audiences and that would be meaningful in different ways than some of my other scholarship uh, on an issue that I've grown to be very passionate about uh, as a result of having been there, um, seen a lot with my own eyes and really developed some really, really strong friendships with Palestinians and, um, you know, Israelis on the, on the left. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing story. And I mean, I think, uh, we, we had talked to Dana Cloud about the case of Stephen Salida on our, on an earlier episode. So I, I think that's a really great connection because I think we want to also get your take on this as an issue of academic freedom, because, uh, it seems like the kind of ideograph of academic freedom gets weaponized by all sides of the BDS debate specifically. And you, know, you have an interview in the book with Professor David Lloyd, um, who you know, explicitly frames it that way and talks a lot about how, for example, you know, the Israeli bombardments of Gaza have destroyed academic institutions, how Palestinians have very little academic freedom, um, and of course, then that that sort of boomerangs back on on uh, Americans, uh, people in the U.S. studying the issue of Palestine and, and having trouble getting published when doing it, or or um, you know maintaining positions in universities. So I wonder if you could just talk about the issue of academic freedom more broadly, what that means to you, and and how it intersects with the BDS issue. Yeah, it's it's quite complicated, right? Because on the one hand, uh, academic freedom in the United States doesn't really exist. I mean, it exists to a pretty strong degree for people like me who are tenured professors at research and public research institutions where it's very hard to fire me for both of those reasons, the fact that I work for the state and the fact that I'm tenured. Um, because at least so far, unlike the University of Wisconsin, which is part of why I left, the University of Texas still has strong uh, tenure protections, right? But that's up to the whim of a state legislature and the Board of Regents, right? And it's, you know, a private institution, it's even more precarious. And so on the one hand, academic freedom is always a kind of farce. Um, but nonetheless, it's something I think is very important and that we, we should have. Uh, on the matter of, of BDS, I mean, for me, it's quite it's quite simple to say that I'm going to boycott a, an institution, right? That colludes with Israeli occupation or with settlements in the West Bank to say, I'm gonna to stop working with an institution um, doesn't stop anyone's academic freedom. Now, if I said, I, I'm gonna target individuals, then I think we would be moving into the realm of academic freedom. But I still, like for example, I still work closely with Israeli co colleagues, right? I take no money from their institution. I don't collaborate with their institution, but I have Israeli colleagues who, who, who I work with. Um, and I don't see that as a violation of the BDS at all because that's, a, that's an academic freedom issue. So on the one hand, I just think it's a, actually a big straw figure uh, that people make that the but boycotts are uh, impacting people's academic freedom. But the other side of it is just exactly what you were saying, Calvin. Like, if you go to the West Bank, you realize that people in the West Bank literally have no academic freedom. They hardly have freedom of movement. And so if we're going to try and talk about privileged people in the United States or privileged people in Israel, 
you know, having their academic freedom violated. Like, I'm sorry, if that's your argument, you can go fuck yourself because that means you have no understanding whatsoever of the human rights violations that are going on against people in the West Bank. And it's a desperate, dire situation. I mean, people, you know, because there are separate road systems for settlers and for Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. And so folks who teach at like Birzat University, I mean, they might have to drive two and a half hours just to get to their office because not only do they have to go on these windy roads just to get there, but half the time there's either going to be Israeli defense forces or illegal settlers who are stopping them sometimes for hours at a time so they can't even get to their jobs, right? Like, that's the academic freedom issue. Um, and so to me, and maybe I'm just like simple-minded this way, but that's just how I look at it. I just can't see any other reasonable way to look at it um, unless you're just so invested in the project of the Israeli state in a Zionist way. You have Orientalist views about Palestinians and Arabs writ large, and that's what's informing your point of view. I really, I get really dogmatic on this in ways I don't about other things because I just don't know how to see it other way. Like I really don't. And I've never been convinced to be able to see it otherwise. Well, yeah. And I think, I think the propaganda is so strong on, on this issue, like specifically divorcing what BDS is all about from the long and storied and noble history of boycotts as social movement tactics, right? Yeah. I mean, so one of the things I'm looking at in the forthcoming book is um, in, in 1990 and 1992, because in 1987, the U.S. passed a ban on HIV positive immigrants coming to the United States. And so this became a problem for the International AIDS Society, which puts on the International AIDS Conferences every other year. Because the one in 1990 and the one in 1992 are both scheduled for the United States. But it meant that people couldn't come in if they had HIV or AIDS. Um, and truthfully, even if you schedule it elsewhere and people left, they may not be able to come back if they were immigrants, right? And so uh, a bunch of public health officials and doctors and scientists and other folks, they began organizing a boycott. Um, and they ended up boycotting, then many boycotted the 1990 conference and threatened to boycott the one in 1992, actually got the one in 92 moved to Amsterdam. Um, and they, they did that again, not to target individuals, uh, but because they felt like they had to, and it also wasn't an economic boycott, right? The, the currency was, you know, life or death. And so they were put in a bad position, but they you know, they chose to do it. Event It didn't actually work. I mean, the ban on HIV positive immigrants doesn't lift until 2010. But around that same time, right, that's when you get the BDS movement that informs the Palestinian BDS movement, which is, of course, against apartheid in South Africa, which did end up having a very positive effect in terms of the end of apartheid. And so, uh, and we could go way back and talk about boycotts throughout the 20th century. Um, they are, they're a tried and true tactic. Um, they're usually a last resort, uh, and often they're very effective. Yeah, I really appreciate that. <clears throat> kind of bringing it back to the point that we started out on, on the possibilities of coalitional politics, right? Um, I mean, right directly in the introduction to Palestine on the Air, you you talk, you kind of draw a connection between uh, your work on the U.S.-Mexico borderland and 
the issue of uh, of uh, uh, recognizing uh, Palestinian rights with with you know the quote from I believe it's Isabel Garcia who says your struggle is our struggle your wall is our wall um, and yeah I just thought that that was kind of a poignant uh, note to kind of maybe wrap things up on a little bit was uh, I guess what are what are uh, you know beyond boycotts what are some other possibilities for coalitional political movements that you see in relation to you know movements for Palestinian liberation as well as these broader topics of you know uh, expanding freedom of movement and of uh, belonging and citizenship across the world yeah i mean these things are so complicated and coalition of course is not the you know the the end all be all if you think about taking the palestine uh, issue if you think back to the 1960s and african americans and the civil rights movement uh, one of their biggest allies of course were jewish americans um, and so the Jewish community was central to the civil rights movement in, in so many important ways. But then in, you know, uh, 1967, you get the, one of the big wars and uh, black folks in the U.S. are starting to pay attention to what's going on with the Palestinians. And a number of black folks actually go to Palestine to learn about the Palestinian struggle. They realize there are black Palestinians. And then they come back and their strongest ally, right, uh, is by and large not entirely comfortable with that new alliance right and so in some ways for every uh, turning toward becomes or can become a turning against and so how do we work within that dynamic i think you know this historical moment is fascinating in this way as well uh, specifically with regard to, to the movement for black lives and so uh, one of the things i'm most compelled about right now is thinking about the problematic of the coalition that is people of color. And uh, I've been very invested. I have a piece coming out in a little bit where I'm sort of reflecting on how my own work is invested in this coalition that is people of color. Uh, and what that has done is largely erased uh, black suffering or assume there's a parallel to be made. And so how not just do white folks be good allies to black communities right now, but how do other people of color who've also suffered as a result of systemic racism build linkages with black communities that keep black voices at the center um, and that seed space. Um, and, and, and that is complicated because many, at least like in the non-black Latino community, you do that, it's seen as a turning away from your own community, right? And so I'm a chair of a Latino studies department right now and my politics are 100% what I just said, but the community is not always very happy with that. Um, and of course they don't like the fact that a mixed race, mixed race queer you know, is at the helm of this department anyway, a feminist, like that's a whole other thing, right? Um, but I think we always have to take these opportunities to try to, to, to work toward um, making things better at the same time, um, being really cognizant about what our own sort of silent coalitions are. And so um, Tiffany Lethabo King um, wrote a great book called The Black Shoals. Uh, if you haven't taken a look at it, take a look at it. And she has this really profound critique of coalition uh, where she says, you know, everyone's talking about coalition, but we're not talking about who we go home with. And so you have all these sort of radical black, radical POC scholars who, you know, are going home to their white partners. And that becomes kind of isolated out from the fact that all their political work is with people of color. And what does that mean? Does it mean you shouldn't have a white partner? Probably not, right? But does it mean you have to account for what it means for your most intimate of relationships to be whatever they are, right? 
And so I think digging deep into our relationalities is really key. Thinking about how we ended up in these relationalities, you know, um, and that's a big part of the, the coalitional work that I think needs to be happening right now. So I don't know if that gets at what you're thinking about, but that's what I'm thinking about right now. Yeah. Those are, those are terrific, uh, really provocative and, and we really appreciate the, those, those directions and looking forward to reading more of the work that you have coming out on that. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is fantastic. Um, Karma, is there anything that you want to plug here at the end of our conversation, like, uh, the, the upcoming book or anything that you want to make our listeners aware of? You know, uh, I have a, an edited book that is, I thought it was sp- supposed to come out yesterday, and so I sent some announcements, and then my co-editor said, well, actually, now it's not coming out till October 26th, so I jumped the gun a little bit there, so to speak, but I have a new edited book called Queer and Transmigration, uh, Dynamics of De- Legalization, Detention, and Deportation with the University of Illinois Press. Uh, I'm really excited about this edited book because it's deeply transnational and it features the voices of academics, activists, and artists alongside each other. So it's got a beautiful spread of full color uh, art images, uh, largely by immigrant, but not entirely immigrant artists, but people dealing with the issues. Uh, and yeah, that, that'll be out soon. Um, and it's for a, it's a quite thick book, but we, we got it down to 25 dollars and i also have a 30 percent coupon if anybody wants it so i'm very excited about that that that's coming out and yeah that's about it all right well again we want to say thank you so much uh karma chavez for for coming on reverb uh you've been a great inspiration to both calvin and i not just uh in your the the specific you know journal level scholarly work but also your your radio work as well um it's been an absolute joy to have you on here thank you for being with us Yeah, thanks, guys. I've had a really great time. Absolutely. And uh, from all of us here at Reverb, uh, until next time, take care, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Our show today was produced by Calvin Pollock, Alex Helberg, and Ben Williams, with editing work done by me, Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producer is Sophie Wadzak. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for listening.